Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Thanks for joining me for Paddling the Blue. I appreciate you tuning in today. This interview is the second half of a conversation that I had with Andrea Nepper about Dre's West Coast adventure. So starting at the Canadian border, paddling the entire length of the West Coast of the United States uh, down to the Mexico border. So where we left off at part one, Dre had just been picked up by a paddling family just outside San Francisco. She was taking a a day or two off the water just to kind of regroup and uh, kind of figure out where she should go from there. She was having a little bit of struggle on the water, so just needed to make some plans to move forward. So we're going to learn the advice that she picked up from that family, how she put that into action, and then advice that she has for others planning large expeditions, and we'll talk about what happens at the very end. So enjoy the rest of the interview with Andrea Nepper. At that point, I had lost over 5% of my body weight, close to 10% of my body weight, and I, I don't have a ton of fat. I didn't start with a ton of fat to lose. Um, but I was I was losing fat like crazy. And so then started eating more and more and more and made a point of adding fat to my daily intake, you know, re redid those those dinner portion sizes back to what I had planned instead of the decrease that I was doing because I just flat out couldn't eat that at the beginning of the trip. Yeah, from then on out, oh my God, I was all about fat, fat and calories. And, um, you know, I would eat a full size snicker bar and, and a couple meat sticks before I ever even got out of my tent in the morning. And I'm not in the habit of storing food in my tent, but I would take like a little breakfast snack into the tent with me at night to be able to eat it before I ever even got up. (laughs) So by the time Um, you were finishing the trip, were you, uh, did you go from can't, don't want to eat food to can't find enough food? Yeah, I did. By the very, very end of the trip, I had I had fixed it, and I was still eating a ton and, and really eating a lot of fat. But but I I fixed that deficit for for a few weeks. I was just desperately desperately tired. And then towards the very end of the trip, I realized, oh, I'm I'm still tired, but I'm not desperate anymore. Like I have I have managed to fix this, but I, it's it's hard to describe it because I've never and and it wasn't that I felt hungry and so you know I've never experienced that type of not getting what my body needed <laughs> over a relatively long period of time and it was it was really disconcerting and did you ever have any uh, significant periods of doubt no I mean what is a significant period of doubt? I had those several weeks where I was sort of constantly desperate, but I was also in the midst of this incredible beauty. I, I was pleased to find that I knew that I had the skill to do this. I was really, really careful about judgment. And, you know, it's easy to not actually make your decision based on what you're actually seeing because we get these schemas in our heads, right? It's easy to to make assumptions instead of actually looking at what's around us compared to what was around us yesterday. So I was very, very careful to make sure that anytime I had to make a decision, I sort of backed off from my gut decision and made myself walk through what am I seeing and what are my options and, and, and what's the decision to be made here. 
Um, so I was really careful about that, but I knew that I had the skills to do this. And so I didn't have any significant periods of doubt. There was a moment in the trip when I realized that I could stop and that I could end the expedition any time that I wanted to. And at some level, like, duh, (laughs) of course you can end the trip. But it was a revelation to realize that I could end the trip, but I never actually considered ending the trip. But but it was it was quite the moment when I realized that I could. And there were there were moments of fear. Um, there were definitely times when I was terrified. So tell us about some of those. Yeah, the very first one was within the, the first week of the trip. It was in southern Washington. And it was my first 30 plus mile day. You know, the, the forecast had I had had a a day that I wasn't on the water because of the forecast and then it had come down from there and it was coming down and it had been pretty mild for the last several days and it was supposed to, on that day, it was supposed to be continuing to diminish. But fog started coming in and I started looking at, and I forget what the original forecast was. It was supposed to be down to something under four feet at a relatively short period also I was going along cliffs and I was just like this feels bigger than that forecast and it was my first 30 plus mile day somewhere you know sort of late afternoon I started getting weather information and it was like five feet at 19 seconds was this swell that was coming in that evening and I was against cliffs looking for a tiny little beach Um, And the fog came in, and so I couldn't see, I could barely see the cliffs. And it was sort of a situation where I really wanted to see the the land and probably, frankly, could have been quite a bit closer than I was, but didn't want to be any closer than I was. And so sort of that line between staying far enough away, but staying close enough that I could see the shore. It was it was kind of interesting too, um, because the you know the more the fog descended, the more I had to paddle my compass, and I, I I felt like I paddled a circle. I felt like I turned to the west and kept turning to my right and kept turning my to the, my right, and subjectively, I felt like I paddled an entire circle. And the fact is, I was paddling a straight line. I was paddling my compass, but then to get to the beach that I was looking for to land on, and I wasn't the reason it was a thirty mile day is that I wasn't happy with the landings between <laughs> where I launched and where I wanted to land, and I also wasn't happy with the landings after that. So I really wanted to hit my landing spot, and it was just this little little beach. And then it was you know, sort of uh, in in a protected area past a headland, but really often the headlands then have a reef sticking out. And so, you know, there's a bunch of of rocks and the bigger the waves and the longer the period, the the more the water is doing around those rocks. And so I had to go out around those rocks and it was the first time on the trip that I couldn't see land. Mm. Um, So I'm in the fog, I'm in waves against rocks and it was... The waves were doing some intense things against those rocks. And I had to talk myself through it. And, you know, I, out loud, I talked myself through it out loud. I was just like, okay, 
you got to get around the rocks and you have to go far enough out and, and far enough south to get around this reef. And when there is a safe way through, or maybe there'll be a safe way through and otherwise you go got to go all the way around. And when you get past it, there's going to be a way around. And that's the first thing to do. And okay, we can't see land, but you, I've got a compass and I've got a chart and I know what direction land is. And I know what direction the beach I'm looking for is. And so once I'm around the rocks, then I just need to paddle that compass bearing and land's going to come back into sight. And it did. But it was really foggy and I kept having to, you know, wipe my glasses, wipe my glasses because I couldn't see. And I thought I wasn't going to be able to find the beach because it was just this little beach and it was, you know, all these cliffs. And I'm looking at it and especially not being able to see because of the fog and the, and, you know, and all my glasses too, I was just like, it doesn't look like there's a beach there. It looks like it's just water against cliffs. There was something on the chart, arch or, or something like that. I looked and I saw I saw the arch and I was like, oh, that's what's on the chart right there. And so the beach needs to be right there. So let me paddle back towards that a little bit. And I wanted to be able to get closer to see. And that's when I realized, hey, there's this little patch of water here that is calmer than the rest. And I'm actually safe right here and I can go closer in right here. And I was like, I need to watch those rocks here and I need to watch these rocks here and I need to watch that cliff here. But this little spot, I'm protected. So let me go closer in here in this safe water to see if I can get closer and see things. And then I was just like, oh, this is still safe water. And then I was like, oh, there's a beach. And, you know, mostly I wasn't liking the surf that I was seeing, but I was just like, oh, this beach actually is landable surf. And that was my beach. <laughs> and Excellent. I landed. And, you know, the, the first 30 plus day on the expedition, I, I took a rest day the next day. I did not get up back on that water again. There was there was no way I was getting an early start the next morning. And, you know, the next paddling day was also a 30 plus mile day. So it was my first rest day. <laughs> um, and it was this beautiful, beautiful beach. And it was it was one of the few that where there was absolutely nobody else there. And so it was just me. Um, and I didn't see anybody else and I didn't hear anybody else. And there wasn't somebody else, you know, just sort of like a hike up some some dunes or a cliff or, or whatever. But that was the first time on the trip that, that I didn't see water and that I didn't see water because of fog. And I was trying to navigate waves against rocks in the fog. <laughs> and it's like you're trying not to rock garden instead of trying to get in the features, <laughs> but you can't see the rocks. <laughs> yeah. So the power of power of positive self-talk really brought you through. Absolutely, because I realized, you know what, I know what to do here. I know how to do this. And it's, you just need to do the next thing. And, you know, you don't need to do the next 18 things. You just do, need to do the next thing that you need to do right now. And and, and I do, when I talk to myself, I, I talk to myself that way of here's what you need to do as opposed to here's what I need to do. <laughs> and so, you know, that's what I was saying. Hey, you just need to do the next thing. You know, the next thing is to get around the rocks. Okay, now we're around the rocks. So the next thing is to find land again. Okay, now we've found land again. So the next thing is to find where that beach is. Okay, now we've found the beach. And the next thing is to figure out if it's landable. And okay, it's landable. The next thing is to land. And okay, there's, you know, wait for a big set. Because man, the Pacific Ocean, when you get that that longer period swell the big sets really are a lot bigger than the you know sort of average ones and so i i really learned to be patient um mm -hmm. and if there was a landing that that i wasn't really happy with i learned to wait 
um, until a big set came through and watch and watch what the big set did and then wait again until a big set came through again so that then I could land following the, you know, the last wave of the big set. So I learned to be patient. <laughs> Sometimes we come across a, a, a gigantic task. And if we look at it as that gigantic project, rather than breaking it down into the smaller parts, and it certainly seems insurmountable, but by using the, uh, how do you eat an elephant kind of technique? Yeah. Uh, you break it down into those smaller chunks. Absolutely. And it's completely about breaking it down in those smaller chunks. And every single one of those smaller chunks, like I know how to do that. <laughs> well, it's well within my skills. So in what ways did you physically prepare for this trip? So so the physical preparation was less than the rest of the preparation because I had this moment when I realized, you know, I was like, I need to get on the water. I need to get out in conditions. I need to practice this. I need to practice that. You know, I was starting the trip in June. I was leaving Chicago at the very beginning of June. Lake Michigan is still really cold. So, but I was just like, you know, I don't need to get out in conditions. Yeah, this trip is going to be in conditions, but I don't need to get out in conditions. I've spent the last 15 years learning how to paddle those conditions. And if I can't paddle those conditions, like getting out in those conditions for a month beforehand or for several months beforehand, it's it, that's not gonna help me <laughs> like I, I have the skill and trying to find those conditions on the Great Lakes when the water's 40 degrees like that wasn't gonna help me and I also realized there was no way that I was gonna be paddling the mileage because the expedition now is gonna be paddling all day every day and I couldn't be paddling all day every day to prepare so what I ended up doing in terms of the physical preparation was that I decided that I wanted to paddle the same number of days that I thought I was going to be paddling on the expedition. And so I tried to just make sure that I was on the water five days a week. Most of those days I, I, I was working and I, I was I was getting ready to, you know, I direct Chicago Adventure Therapy. It's a nonprofit. I'm the founder. I'm the executive director. I was trying to get prepared for my staff to have our busy summer season without me. I was working hard. <laughs> I was working a lot of hours and I was making food for the expedition and trying to figure out all of that and buying stuff that I needed. And like, I was, I was working lots of hours. And so the mileage that I was paddling on those five days a week, most of the time wasn't very much. Like sometimes I was on the water for maybe an hour, but I just, I decided, Hey, you know what? I'm going to build the endurance for mileage on the trip. But if I can have my body used to being on the water every day, that's going to make it easier. So I did that. And then what I wanted to do, I I thought that I was going to average around 20 miles a day. Um, I knew that there were a few places where, you know, there were military bases mm -hmm. um, and you're not allowed to land and that I was going to need to have some long days. And I thought the longest that I was going to have to paddle in a day would be around 40 miles. So I was trying to sort of build up to some some longer paddles because I really wanted to be able to paddle a longer day than I thought I was going to have to paddle on the expedition. Um, and so I wanted to get to where I had a 45-mile day. Um, but my mileage built up a little slower than I had planned because I was also moving my organization right before this expedition. And so literally, I rented a place for my business. I think I signed the lease like two weeks before I left Chicago. That's good timing. And 
<laughs> What's that? That's great timing. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> so so I didn't I didn't get the mileage that I wanted to in terms of long mileage, but basically I was trying to get on the water five days a week. So I had that consistency and then to try to get some longer paddles in. The fact is before this expedition, the longest day that I had ever paddled was 35 miles in a day. And before this expedition, I think I had only paddled more than 20 miles in a day, like five, no, like six days. And what was your longest day on the trip? My longest day on the trip was 49.9 miles. Mm. Yeah, it was couldn't long. couldn't find that extra tenth anywhere, huh? What's that? <laughs> you couldn't find that extra tenth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually landed on the slightly wrong beach, and if I had gone to the right one, it I mean, it was it was the same place to land, but there were just two two beaches there, and the right one would have had that extra tenth, but uh, uh, I didn't care. <laughs> it was a very, very long day. Yeah. So let's hear a little bit about some of the equipment that you used on the trip. So I was I was quite lucky to get sponsor- sponsorship from several companies. Um, so I had a, a brand new dry, dry suit from Kokotet, which I wore ba- until right before... Southern California. Um, and then I also had a dry, a shorty dry top and neoprene shorts that Kokota also gave me. And then by the very end, I was wearing just, you know, a pair of nylon capris and a short sleeve paddling shirt. I used a, the boat that I used. Um, P&H sponsored me and they gave me a boat. Um, and I actually chose a plastic boat. I chose a Scorpio. And I got lots of questions about that. Why did I choose a plastic boat? Because it certainly added weight, which does not make things easier. And I chose a plastic boat because I knew I was solo. And I figured I would be likely dragging that boat up and down a beach every day for three and a half to four months. And it ended up being almost exactly three months, but still, that's a lot of dragging. Sure. And I also there were there were two other things that made me decide to use a plastic boat. One was two different stories of expeditioners having their boat fold at the cockpit. One was Freya. I think it was when she was in Alaska, and it wasn't big surf, but she just hit it wrong, and it must have been fairly it dumpy surf, you know, because her her bow hit the the bottom when the wave was at just the right, the wrong place, and it broke her boat in half. <laughs> wow! And then there was also a Daniel Cox, David Cox, Daniel Cox, who was doing an expedition from somewhere in Washington to I don't remember where he was going, um, but he crash landed on Cannon Beach in Oregon, and in big surf and a. a Big wave caught him from behind and same thing, folded his boat at the cockpit and broke it in half. So I was certainly hoping not to end up in a situation like that. My hope was that in big surf like that, I wouldn't be landing in that spot or at that time that I would be opting not to paddle on that day or be able to find a more protected spot to land. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you can't really predict the ocean. You have to be ready to land in big stuff because it can come up unexpectedly. And Freya's, when her boat broke in half, it wasn't big surf. She just, you know, the wave caught her at just the wrong time, the wrong angle. And I figured 
that that if I got caught by the wrong wave, a plastic boat was much less likely to break in half. <laughs> and it did occur to me that if it was if that situation was really bad, a plastic boat might fold at the cockpit. But I figured it would take a lot more force to fold a plastic boat than to break a glass boat in that same situation. Um, so that was also one of the reasons I chose a plastic boat. And then also, I love one of my favorite places to paddle is in Baja. The, the rock gardening there, the, the place I go most often and the person I go most often with is Jen Kleck down there in, by Ensenada. Um, and she has banned glass boats after having had a variety of, of incidents with glass boats. And so, you know, I, I, I learned to appreciate plastic boats in a way that I, I didn't when I first started getting serious about sea kayaking. And my, my theory on this trip was that I didn't plan to be getting crashed up onto rocks. I wasn't, I wasn't planning on rock gardening. I was planning on not getting on, you know, features really for playing because (laughs) I was going to have a loaded boat and I was going to be solo. And so I was planning not to put myself in a situation where there was the potential for going up on rocks. But the fact is I was going 1500 miles along cliffs and rocks. And if I did end up going up on the rocks. Similar situation, that plastic boat was likely to get less catastrophically hurt than a glass boat. And I was also going to be more likely to be able to come up with a fix for it. Tupperware is certainly going to be more durable. Yep, exactly. And, and you know, there's some good plastic boats out there. Yeah, so I used a P&H Scorpio LV. And that that's something that, you know, from the time I have first, that I first started um, camping out of kayaks, you know, people talk about, oh, you need this bigger boat for expeditioning because you have to fit stuff in it. And I've always, always, always been of the opinion that you need a boat that fits. And I personally think that puts me at a little bit of a disadvantage for expeditioning because I'm relatively small. And so I need a small boat if it's going to fit me properly. And so there's less volume to be able to pack stuff into. So I've gotten good at packing boats. I used a Werner paddle. Um, and Werner sponsored me also, and I was quite pleased with that. I've used Werner paddles for, God, 20 years, something like that. I used a, a Cypress 205, and unlike a lot of people, I really, really like the small shaft because I have really small hands, and it just fits my hands better. Oh, and I used a Seals uh, spray skirt. Um, they were really nice, too, to give me stuff. And I had a I had an MSR Hubba Hubba tent, which was brand new last February. I hadn't used it much before this expedition, and it, it does not look new anymore. <laughs> um, but then days. there were the things that I used that, like, my my cook set, uh, my stove is 19 years old. I just used a whisper light because it's small and it's field cleanable. And my husband and I, I know that's 19 years old because we registered for it at REI for our wedding. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best um, wedding gift ever. It, I know, right? And it has been a trustworthy stove for 19 years. And, uh, you know, I got the big repair kit for it. And that's what I used as my stove. And then my my pots and pans are a, a cook set that my mom gave to me when I was in college, when I was like, I don't know, 19 or something like that. So that would be 
25 years old and I think it's a set that we used when I was a kid so I think that thing is actually closer to like 35 years old and it's just this aluminum cook set and it works great. <laughs> they probably uh, that same cook set probably traveled the canyons in Colorado and the Winona, and the Winona. <laughs> yep exactly. <laughs> other other gear that I used I just lost the Yeti mug that I took with me and I'm so sad to have lost it because that thing traveled 1500 miles with me on the Pacific Coast and it tra traveled with me on the Hiawatha Water Trail on Lake Superior. Ah. Um, was that your was Ladies so of the Lake one? That mug. <laughs> Wasn't that, was that your Ladies of the Lake, I think? It was, yeah. yes. I think I saw I, your post on Facebook about that. I was so sad to lose that mug. So, oh, but then... Um, Cooking, like food, I, I actually put a lot of thought into what I wanted to use for eating out of and actually bought a, you know, sort of food, I don't know what the term is, a, a thermos, but not, you know, a tall skinny one for drinking, one that's made for food and that's made for keeping food hot and it's it's waterproof, it's a thermos, it's, it's, it's not a mug because almost every day I put part of my dinner in there in the morning and put water on it and let it soak all day because um, I dehydrated a whole lot of food. Yeah, so that was that was super, super convenient. And then a fun, funny story about, about food stuff though, on the second Airbnb that my mom got, I decided to put all of my food stuff in the dishwasher and like clean it. And it was like, oh, this is great. And then pulled all of my stuff out of the dishwasher and repacked it. And my Nalgene's were clean and my cook set was clean and my, my you know, thermos was clean and my mug was clean. And I left my utensils. <laughs> uh, so I, on the beach, had to find a, a, there wasn't really a lot of driftwood on that beach, but I found a seashell to eat with to use as a spoon and a little piece of driftwood to use to stir my food because this the seashell just wasn't the right shape <laughs> improvise and overcome exactly so yeah i completely ate with a, a seashell as a spoon and <laughs> yeah i had to rinse it pretty well because it was a little bit as, as you know I, I found a nice clean one but it was still a little bit slimy when it got wet so i <laughs> i rubbed it off pretty good to get it <laughs> try to rub the slime off <laughs> so what advice might you might you give to someone who's uh, looking to plan a similar trip so um test all of your systems test all of your systems whether it's food or gear or how you're gonna sleep or how you're gonna do your navigation, what your safety protocols are, what your safety gear is, test all your systems and, and test them as, as realistically as you can, like cook and eat the food that you're going to, that you're, you plan to eat. Use, use the boat that you plan to paddle. Make sure you know how to set up your tent, test your stove, just test all your systems so that nothing comes as a surprise on that front and that if there's a system that you think is going to be perfect and it's not, you have a chance to change it <laughs> before you're actually on the water. Also, one of the things that I would say is make sure that when you're planning it, unless you're trying to break a record or set a new record or, or you have really, really limited time, but you really want to 
get a certain distance, unless any of those things are true, plan the trip in a way that you can take things slow so that you can see that you can see the things that you're paddling by and the place that you're paddling in. You know, chances are if it's a it's if it's a big expedition or it's a bucket list sort of a thing, chances are you're not going to paddle there lots and lots and lots of times. So take the time to really see it and be immersed in it. And um, after all of that testing and all of that planning and all of that, be ready to have a really different trip than what you planned. Because <laughs> it's likely to be it, it's likely to be quite different. And then the last thing, I don't know if this un- exactly falls under the category of advice, but nevertheless, remember that the single most important skill is is your judgment. Um, the most important skill isn't your paddling skills or your navigation or your self-rescue. All of those things are really, really important. But the single most important skill is is your judgment. And so make sure that if you're getting ready to do a big expedition, whatever big means, <laughs> that that you have dialed in your judgment and that you understand enough about the environment that you're in that you can make good judgment calls and that you don't set up situations and we all know what those situations are whether it's timing or or trying to hit a goal or whatever but don't put yourself in a situation that is likely to compromise your ability to make good decisions because making those good decisions is it it is the single most important skill all certainly excellent pieces of advice (laughs) it was the thing that scared me the most was was making a a bad decision because i had a hundred days with a hundred decisions every day, you know, one bad decision can make things really bad. Yeah. Shut the whole thing down. Yep. <laughs> any particular, uh, local knowledge, outfitters, shops, or any, any, uh, anybody you'd like to give a shout out to that really helped you? Oh gosh. And I meant to actually write some of them down. Well, if there's any that we forget, I can put them in the show notes for afterwards for, for folks yeah, to pick up on should, as well. Yeah, you should with links to them because there were some places that were really, really great. I think it was Kayak Connection in Santa Cruz. Let me stay in their shop for the night uh, before then crossing Monterey Bay the next day. Um, that was super, super helpful. Jeff Laxier and Kate Hawthorne of Liquid Fusion. I stayed with them a couple days, and they um, they run an outfitter out of Fort out of Fort Bragg, or they run classes out of out of Fort Bragg, and they they helped out. My my dry suit gaskets were starting to get soft, and they helped take care of that. And they I, I got these the my heels, the outside of my heels got so 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 sore, and they had some foam, and we glued foam into the bottom of the boat to see if the extra cushioning would help. My heels feel better, so they were super helpful. Sean Morley in San Francisco let me have replacement gaskets mailed to him, and he actually did the replacement for me for the gaskets. Jen Kleck, who does not own Aqua Adventures anymore, she sold it, but she did for a long time. One of my mentors and provided a lot of the training that where, where I got the skills to, to paddle. She... From like she she lives in San Diego and when I started getting pretty far south, um, I think I spent the last three or four nights of my expedition at her house and so I would pet. So first first she drove to Malibu because there just wasn't really a place to camp 
on the beach because it's just all really fancy, rich places. Um, and she picked me up and we camped at a campsite nearby that wasn't actually, you know, camping on the beach. And then that was my last camping day. So then she also took most of my stuff. So I was able to run with a much lighter boat after that for like the last, I don't know, 10 days of the trip, something like that. And then the last several days of the trip, whether she picked me up or someone else did, someone would pick me up and then I would end up at her house (laughs) and she would feed me dinner and she would feed me breakfast and then take me back to where I had landed the night before and put me back on the water. So that was super, super helpful. Um, and then she also arranged, you know, helped with logistics for my friends and my family to, to meet me at my, at the end and helped make sure people knew where to be and how to get there and, you know, planned a celebratory dinner that night. And, um, so she was really, really helpful also. And then, you know, there's a few people that aren't really outfitters that, that I wish I could give a mm-hmm. shout out to, but it, you know, there's a, there's a, an old fisherman at Shelter Cove on the lost, on the lost coast who was really helpful in telling me how to find where I was going on a day that was super, super foggy um, and just took an interest in making sure I was safe. And I wish I could give him a shout out, but he, he's not an outfitter. He's just a, he's a guy who's been fishing there for probably 60 years. Wow. Well, you <laughs> yeah. just did. So what's that? So you, you just did. He may not, he may not know it, but maybe someday he'll go. come across the, come across this. Yeah, I think his name was AJ. And then um, similar vein, there's a guy in LaPush, Washington, who runs the gas station at the little marina there. Um, and that was the first place that I pulled off this trip. I was I was away from home for four months. And it's the longest my husband and I have been apart from each other in 20 years. It's the longest we've gone without seeing each other since we started dating. And so, you know, I kept a log of the trip. But then I also had a separate logbook um, that I wrote a note to him each night. And then when I would get to a place where I could mail it, I would pull out the pages that I had written and mail it to him. And LaPush, Washington was the first place where I pulled out to look for a, a, a post office or a, a mailbox. And this guy drove me to the post office to be able to mail the note to Terry and gave me a bunch of local knowledge about the area and looked at Google Earth with me and looked at charts with me and, you know, just sort of the first piece of, of, of local knowledge that I got. And, and it was kind of fun because he and AJ both also crossed paths. Have you, um, do you ever read about the two brothers who took SUP boards from, from Ketchikan to, I think they went down to Baja. I think originally they were just going to California and then yeah. they continued down to Baja. So they stopped at that same marina in La Push and they, they stopped at that same marina in Shelter Cove. And these two, these two men, both of these old men, <laughs> um, also interacted with, with those two two brothers and but anyway both you know they both were um guys who know the ocean there and and just took a particular interest in in my safety and and that was really cool but on an entirely different note from your question that was also really interesting to sort of intersect with the path and the story of of other people who who went a long distance on the water sort of self-powered and to to interact with their story through 
other people who met them and then met me and to know they were in the same place. And that was really interesting too. Small world. We're all linked together. We really are. You mentioned uh, Chicago Adventure Therapy earlier. Tell us a little bit about Chicago Adventure Therapy. Yeah, so Chicago Adventure Therapy is a nonprofit that I founded, and we work with underserved youth in Chicago, and we use outdoor sports to build life skills. So we do a lot of leadership development, communication, problem solving, all the things that that outdoor, outdoor sports build. We do it intentionally. And so, you know, it, it's kind of fun. I get to hang out with homeless and street-based youth, and I get to hang out with refugee youth, and I get to hang out with trans youth, and I I get to hang out with gang-involved youth, and I get to go camping with them, and I get to go paddling with them, and I get to go climbing with them, and I I get to um, do sort of more reflective nature-based things with them too, and reflect on adventure and risk, and reflect on beauty and and family, and uh, it's an organization that I founded in 2006 and we ran our first programming in 2007 learned to call it a pilot and do everything differently and then our first real programming was in 2008 so we've been around for a little while and it was kind of cool you know for this expedition it was I was at a point in my paddling skills where I finally realized oh you know what I can do this now Um, And I was also in a point with this organization that I founded that I was just like, you know what, they can, they can run this without me for a season. And so we actually, we spent a couple years getting ready for it. The, you know, sort of January of 2018, I told them, hey, I'm going to take a sabbatical summer of 2019. I'm going to be gone. And so this is going to be you guys doing this. So let's talk about what you need for the summer of 2019. And let's talk about what we need to do in the summer of 2018 for you guys to be ready to take this on without me in the summer of 2019. Um, so, you know, we've been we've been planning for this expedition in the organization for a little while. And it's pretty cool because it's proof positive, I think, for all of us that the organization can function without me and that it can function well without me. The organization is a place, you know, it's always been sort of about me and, and I try to make it not about me, but the reality of the beginning of an organization is that it's very founder-driven and to try to get past that place where it's founder-driven to where it becomes something else and sort of get to that next level in the life, sort of the, ni- the next life stage of a, of a nonprofit, it's a challenging transition. And so for me to just be gone and to be mostly outside, you know, mostly unreachable. (laughs) It's proof positive for my staff that they can do it. It's proof positive for me that they don't need me. It's proof positive for the board. It's proof positive for our young people. And so, so that's pretty cool. This organization is going to be able to, to go on without me, which is what I want. I don't, I don't want it to be something that is, is just something I do. And when I retire, it's done. I want this to be something that that goes on because we get to make some some pretty powerful impact um, on the lives of a lot of young people, and that's that's important to me. Yeah, when you when you have the opportunity to make that positive difference um, in someone's life, and in this case, a number of people's lives, and you're exposing youth to a different world, um, and it's rare that we have that opportunity where we get to get up in the morning and be able to say, "I get to do this," as opposed to "I have to do this." Yeah, so it's it's sort of, you know, this this expedition has been 
a, a bucket list for me and this organization is sort of my life's work. There's, I don't know, a parallel. But there was also a, a parallel between this expedition and and what we ask our young people to do because we work with young people who we we push them pretty far outside of their comfort zone and you know we're working with young people who don't swim or are afraid of water and we're taking them paddling and we're working with young people who are afraid of heights and we're taking them climbing and we're working with young people who are basically afraid of nature (laughs) and (laughs) and we're taking them camping and you know we're asking them to do things that scare them and we're asking them to push themselves all the way to their limits and then keep pushing and we're asking them to do things that they don't know if they can do it and they're not quite sure how they're going to do it if they try we are asking them to do things where they risk failure and I don't think that we can ask young people to do things that are that scary and that vulnerable without being willing to do it ourselves. So it was kind of cool to to have this opportunity like this. It, I, you know, I've said several times, hey, I have the skills to do this, but it also it pushed me all the way to my limits and past them. It was, you know, it was hard. It was incredibly beautiful. It was amazing, and it was hard. And I always, I always feel like my personal paddling and, and my work are very, very tied together. And that the things that, that I learn personally, I try to bring back for our young people. And the things that I ask our young people to do, I try to make sure that, that I'm, I'm also doing that. Well, you um, so, and then I also, you know, I got back and less than a month after I was back at work a, a young man who's who's not in programming anymore but has been around for a while and wanted to to talk and we got coffee and uh, he has been thinking about doing a bike expedition and wanted to ask me questions about the expedition um, and about planning because because he wants to do this um, and I just got to thinking oh my god it would be so cool if at some point there are cat youth or former cat youth who are young adults now who who want to take an expedition and if we can figure out how to give them the support to safely do that like how cool would that be that would be that'd be pretty amazing wouldn't it wouldn't that just yeah wouldn't that just be so cool so I, i don't know if you had initially planned for this expedition to to grow another expedition in that way i didn't no, and so with the growth of Chicago Adventure Therapy, cat, we call it cat, mm-hmm. you know, I try to make sure we're being planful and deliberate um, and intentional, but I also try to make sure that we're paying attention to where where is sort of that, that, that growth edge and where is the organic growth, because we can plan all sorts of things, and if it's not what fits, it, it's not going to work. Um, but if we can stay open to where is the growing edge and where are, are young people leading us and where are the, the sticking points that we need to create new programming because young people have gotten older, but they still want to paddle, but they're adults now, or, you know, whatever. If we're paying attention to those natural growing edges and responding to those, then the, the growth is really organic and it's, it's where it needs to be. Um, and that's where, that's where the magic happens. So if somebody wants to learn a little bit more about uh, Chicago Adventure Therapy, how might they find you? 
Yeah, so we are online. We have a website, Google Chicago Adventure Therapy. And if you Google Chicago Adventure Therapy, you'll find our website. You'll find our Facebook page. We have Twitter and Instagram, and we actually have a YouTube channel too. It doesn't have a lot of stuff on it right now. But I have a staff person who first came to us as a youth participant, and she and she and a couple of our young people have decided that we need a much more active YouTube channel and they are working on content. <laughs> so that should be really fun. But yeah, Google Chicago Adventure Therapy. The website is chicagoadventuretherapy.org. There's information there about our programming. Social media has photos and, and updates on sort of a daily basis. And on Facebook or on our website, you can also make a financial contribution to help us continue to do this work. And we would be quite grateful for that. Excellent. And if somebody wanted to reach you specifically, if they had more questions about your West Coast trip, how might they do that? Yeah, so they can email me. Uh, Andrea at ChicagoAdventureTherapy.org. They can also Facebook message me. Um, my, my, my own personal page is, is public. Also, if they send a message through the, the cat Facebook page, they'll reach me. Um, and there's also a website for my expedition and a Facebook page for the expedition. And both of them are Dre's West Coast Adventure. So Dre, D-R-E, apostrophe S. So Andrea, my nickname is Dre, Dre's West Coast Adventure. Google that and the website and Facebook page should should both come up. Well, I will make sure to put uh, links to the Chicago Adventure Therapy site um, as well as Dre's West Coast Adventure in the show notes for, for this episode as well. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Andrea, this has been fantastic. I uh, really appreciate you joining us. One last question before we uh, before we break out here, and that question is: Who else do you might who else do you think might be a great guest for paddling the blue? I have two quite different paddlers from each other who who I think would both be pretty cool. One of them is a Midwest paddler, and you probably know her, Lenore Sabota. And mm-hmm. she, you won't see her paddling 1,500 miles on the West Coast, but I don't know anybody who has introduced more people to this sport than Lenore. And so I think she would have some some really interesting things to be able to say. And then Jerry Polinski is on the East Coast and has paddling, been paddling for quite some time. He's somebody who I've learned a lot from in terms of paddling and in terms of coaching. There has been recently an article going around that was written in response to a risk assessment article written in the avalanche world. And the paddling article that's been going around that was sort of in response to that avalanche world um, was written by a guy who's a friend of Jerry's. And the day that this guy talks about is a day that he and Jerry were paddling. And he, he mentions Jerry in the article. And he is a really accessible guy who is an incredibly good paddler. All right. Well, yeah, I, I and certainly... gets into some really interesting places and, and venues and has done a fair amount of expeditioning. Excellent. Well, I will definitely yeah. reach out to uh, both Lenore and Jerry. Awesome. And uh, again, I really appreciate your time. And it's been fantastic learning about your trip and all the people and the experiences and uh, that you'll have for a lifetime. And I know that you made a positive impact on a lot of people uh, through that trip as well. Thanks. Yeah. 
You're welcome. Thanks again. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.